Revelation chapter 8. One commentator writing on the book of Revelation states, Revelation is a worship service. John did not write a textbook on prophecy. Instead, he recorded a heavenly worship service in progress. One of his major concerns, in fact, is that the worship of God is central to everything in life. It is the most important thing that we do. And certainly, in going through chapters 4 and 5, when John is taken into the presence of the one who sits on the throne, and there he hears five different expressions of worship, two directed to the one who sits on the throne, two directed to the Lamb, and the final one to both uh, God the Father and God the Son, we have a sense that worship is a big thing of what John is writing. But then we get into chapter 6, which deals with the opening of the first six seals, and worship certainly is not what comes to mind. Chapter 7 does seem to return to the the worship theme with the church numbered and numberless, the 144,000 and the great multitude on earth and in heaven. And those in heaven cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels who circle the throne, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and they say, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the 24 elders tells John that those who are in the presence of God, God's people, they serve or they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. But when we get to chapter 8, again, the, the worship theme what seems to sort of disappear. At the beginning of the chapter, it begins with very much Old Testament imagery taken from the Old uh, Testament, from the temple system. Uh, Half an hour of silence, which as we saw, reflects the time when the incense is burned on the altar of incense. Uh, The priest would put the altar, uh, the incense on the altar, and those outside would bow before God in silent prayer. And then we have the angel who has the censer with much incense uh, to offer. Um, it is a reflection of the high priest going into the holiest place once a year. But then we see in verse number five that he takes coals, fire from the altar and hurls them down to the earth. And immediately we're no longer thinking about worship, but we're thinking in terms of judgment, uh, particularly in light of what follows the four trumpets. Um, so I mentioned last week, and I want to spend some time on it today. I think the problem is that we do not connect Worship with justice. We don't see them as belonging together. I mentioned last Sunday that worship as defined in scripture is ascribing worthiness to God. The 24 elders in chapter 4 say to the one who sits on the throne, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. But that's actually the second expression of worship in chapter 4. We need to back up to the first one, in which the four living creatures say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The martyrs under the altar say, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the land and avenge our blood? And if the incense is, as we saw last week, uh, the prayer of the saints then this is the prayer of the saints saying, How long, O Lord? As I said, we could make a case 
that the prayers of the saints are what lead to the unleashing of the judgments that we've seen thus far in chapters 6 and 8. And there is more yet to come. Judgment is an expression of God's holiness. Justice is an expression of God's holiness. And God's people, in their worship of a holy God, are to pray for justice. But I think in today's world, in today's church, this creates real problems because we have, the church has, I think, redefined worship in terms of us. It's sort of what we get out of it, how it makes us feel, rather than it being directed toward God. In scripture, worship and justice are inseparable in two different ways. First of all, in the way that we act toward others, we are to act with justice. This belongs to us. This is our responsibility. But the second is the justice that belongs to God in how he acts toward his enemies and toward the enemies of his people. In scripture, we find both aspects not only mentioned, but emphasized. And I want to read to you several passages. And um, if afterwards you want to know the references, I will tell you. But I want you just to sit and listen as I read to you uh, from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God says to his people, I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's from the book of Amos. Now from the first chapter in Isaiah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling in my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn or listen and learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then toward the end of Isaiah, God's people are confused. They ask about their fasting. Apparently it's not working. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing and it's not working. They're worshiping and it's not working. And God answers them. They begin with their question, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking one or each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it not only or is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? 
Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? God answers, Is this not the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? And then perhaps the best known passage on this, and I will only read the end of it, uh, in Micah chapter 6, in which God just talks about just the numerous sacrifices. And basically, I have no need of this. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This theme, however, is not limited only to the Old Testament, as though somehow we could sort of wiggle our way out by saying, well, that's Old Covenant, that's Old Testament, that does not apply to us. In the Sermon on the Mount, at least as Matthew writes it, is the first major public address that we hear from Jesus. He teaches them and says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, that is, if you are worshiping God, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, justice and worship go together. You cannot worship God if there is injustice in your life, if you are acting in an unjust way toward others. We saw this also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the passage on the Lord's Supper, which we'll be reading in a bit as we remember the Lord's death. Paul is trying to correct the errors the Corinthians have made with regard to the Lord's Supper. And this is what he says. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, as Paul writes this, his focus is not eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. That is, if that were simply the issue, he doesn't spell it out because one can make a case that we are never worthy to come to the Lord's table but rather that the Lord's table has a specific message and what they are doing is going contrary to the message of the Lord's table. Paul says a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. Again, when we went through 1 Corinthians, I argue that Paul is not saying that there needs to be this deep, dark introspection into every nook and cranny of our lives. I think we might never come out if we would do that. But rather... You should examine your attitude toward others. In light of what we're talking about, are you acting with justice toward other people, specifically God's people? The Corinthians were not. They were excluding people. They were not feeding the hungry. They were not feeding the poor. They were simply hanging out with those who were rich. There is no justice in their action. And therefore, Paul says, because there is no justice, there will be judgment. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord, that is the church, eats and drinks judgment on himself. If we fail to act with justice, God will respond with judgment. So, in terms of worship, we are to act with justice. But what about the other part? What about God acting with justice in connection with worship? This is what the imprecatory psalms are about in which the psalmist calls on God to act with judgment. As I said last Sunday when I talked about this, these psalms can be very disturbing, and I'm going to read to you again uh, from Psalm 58, uh, language that 
frankly, many think doesn't belong in the Bible. But the problem is we fail to see it within its proper context, the context of worship. David writes, break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away. When they draw the bow, let their arrows be blunted. Like a slug melting away as it moves along, like a stillborn child, may they not see the sun. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. We need to understand what's being said here. To take justice into our own hands when people have wronged us is wrong. If we have wronged someone, then we need to make that right. That is required, I think, for public worship. But when others have wronged us, we do not have the right to take matters into our own hand. Instead, we go to God in worship and we ask him to make these wrong things right. To commit justice to God is to worship God. And to take justice into our own hands is the opposite of worship. It is anti-worship, if you wish. And therefore, we are not to respond with anger, with malice, with bitterness, with a desire for revenge. Instead, we are to turn to God and worship and commit these things to him. That's what the imprecatory psalms are about. I think that some people will not be convinced. Um, and so perhaps we should put it on a human level. Think in terms of personal relationships. How do you view or how would you view someone in a position of authority who makes the rules in your office, wherever you work, but then lets everybody get along or get away with murder? In other words, they say you need to be here at eight o'clock and then everyone just sort of comes in whatever they want. We want someone who is in a position of authority to exercise that authority. We don't want them to let you know to say these are the rules and then to sort of ignore whether or not you know people follow those rules. Would we respect someone who says these are the rules but then doesn't require that people follow them? In the same way, God has told us how we should live. He knows what is best for us and he says this is how you should live. Now, if he is worthy of respect, if he is worthy of worship, it is because he judges those who do not do the things that he commands them to do. God is worthy of worship because he is the creator. He has established, based on his character, the moral order for us. And he will judge those, he will judge the world, those who do not obey his commandments. All of this to say, when we come to the judgments in the book of Revelation, this is worship. This is God as the holy God doing what needs to be done. And I think John, who is in the presence of God, sees this as the righteous God doing what is just and righteous. In our passage today, the judgments continue. We saw last Sunday the first four trumpets, uh, the first four of seven, like the seven at Jericho, we saw. Judgments that are poured out, which sound very much like the judgment, the plagues that came on Egypt, on Babylon, and that God promised against those who turned against him. The first four trumpets form a unit, as did the first four seals. They describe physical anguish. 
We will now move on to the other trumpets. They describe spiritual torment. The last three trumpets form a unit of sorts and they describe physical, I'm sorry, spiritual anguish. One author has written, hell itself is set loose. Another author says, all hell breaks loose. Because now the judgment is not simply on the creation, on nature, on the waters, on the land, but on the people who have turned against God. Before we get to them, there is an introduction, however. It's the last verse here in chapter 8. And look at it, if you would, verse number 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The King James has the word angel here, but most of the newer translations have the word eagle. In the Old Testament, the eagle is seen in two ways, positively and negatively. In terms of positive, it represents God's salvation, God's protection. At Mount Sinai, after after the Exodus and Israel has come to Mount Sinai, God calls Moses up and he says, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so the eagle is a symbol of God's salvation. But if you get further on into the Old Testament, the eagle is a symbol of God's judgment. Hosea chapter 8. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. So this eagle, which is a sign of judgment, says to people, basically what you haven't seen anything yet. The three trumpets that are about to come that are going to be poured out on these people are almost overwhelming. Woe to the people upon whom this judgment will fall. Today we will look at the fifth trumpet. It is found here in chapter 9, the first 12 verses. Paul along, if you would, in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given a key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, 
and in Greek, Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Two other woes are yet to come. As I said, one author writes of this, all hell breaks loose. One might recall, as this happens, the eighth plague that fell on Egypt, the plague of the locusts. But these are no ordinary locusts. So let's define what's going on here and identify the participants in this plague. First of all, the star that falls to earth is given the key to the abyss. The star refers to Satan. He will be later identified in this passage and beyond. He is the king, the angel over the abyss. His name is Destroyer. In Hebrew, Abaddon. In Greek, it is Apollyon. But in Greek, or in English, I'm sorry, it is the Destroyer. We will see in chapter 12 that he is cast down to earth and his angels with him. But the idea of Satan being cast down to earth is not simply found in the book of Revelation. It is found in the Old Testament. It is found during the time of Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out 72 men on mission, two by two, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And they return to him and they tell him the results. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan has been cast out of heaven. But he does not have authority on his own. He is given the keys, or the key to the abyss, by the one who has the keys of death and Hades. Chapter 1, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the abyss? In the King James it is called the bottomless pit. It is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. It is the place where the plague originates from. It is the place where Satan is king. What about these locusts? Obviously, these are not ordinary locusts. They are not intended to be seen as locusts. Then why are they called locusts? Because they are a plague. They are a devastating plague. And this is a plague that God is letting loose on those who have turned against him. They are not given the power to kill, but only to torture or to torment. The agony they cause is like that when a scorpion stings a man. Those who are tormented will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die. Death will elude them. What are these locusts? What are these creatures? By the way, if you followed anyone who's taught in the book of Revelation, this is usually where they just sort of have a field day, where they just sort of go berserk with all the various interpretations of what they are. Uh, I think, simply put, these locusts are demons who are under the authority of the king, Abaddon, the destroyer, and God lets loose this demonic horde on the land of Israel. The language that is used to describe them is very much that of the Old Testament, in which the prophets describe the armies of Babylon, Nineveh, all the various ones that were coming against God's people are described in these terms. The difference here is that these demonic beings are not there to kill, but they are there to torture, to torment. So, I, I would really warn you against trying to figure out well, what does it mean that they... They look like horses, they look like they have something like crowns, they have hair like women and teeth like lions. I, I think we are not to try to figure out what it means, but rather to be hit with the, the image. What a horrible image this is that John presents 
of this demonic horde that is being let loose on the people of Israel because they have broken the covenant. We see that they come from the abyss like smoke from a giant furnace and then out of the smoke come these creatures. I think John is seeking to paint for us a picture of horror and of terror, this judgment that God is letting loose. I think that's what he intends, not for us to somehow try to figure out this means that. Okay, you might let me slide on that, but what about the five months? I mean, it's mentioned twice, so it must be important. Um, there's several possibilities. One might be to reinforce the idea of the plague of locusts, because locusts usually appeared in Palestine between May and September. If you were going to have locusts, that's when, usually when they showed up. But I think while that sort of reinforces the locusts, the point is that the judgment is limited. It is not an unlimited judgment that's going to go on and on and on. There will be a beginning, there will be an end to this judgment that God is pouring out. It's not an endless plague. Because if it were, we might not think it was a plague anymore. We just say, well, that's the way things are. But when there's a plague that begins and ends, then, then we, we know that this is a judgment that God has sent against these people. There's something else that I've not mentioned, but I'm sure that you caught as I read through here. Uh, the demons cannot touch those who have the seal of God on their forehead. That is, those who are God's people. They're not to harm the land. They're not to harm the grass, the trees, the plants. And they cannot touch God's people. They can only torture and torment those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So the scope of the plague is limited in who it affects, how long it will last, and how it affects them. It's not going to kill them. It will torment them. It's not endless. It will be for five months. And it's not on everyone but those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. Chapter, I'm sorry, verse number 12 sort of ends this section by giving us really horrible news that this outbreak of demons is only the first woe. There are two more yet to come. And one could imagine what could be worse than hell being set loose. Well, there is more yet to come. What does it all mean? I mean, what is it that John is trying to tell us here as he writes uh, about this fifth trumpet? Simply put, it describes a part of the judgment that God is about to pour out on those who have broken the covenant. Those who are called the people of God, but who have turned against God, God now judges them. They were in covenant, as in marriage. Hosea uses that image. God is the husband, Israel is his wife, but Israel has been unfaithful to God, and now God will judge her. The God of justice, whom we worship, is about to bring the consequences of violating the covenant on those who willfully and deliberately broke the covenant. Jesus spoke about this during his ministry, but I think we might miss it, because we're not looking at it we don't see things in, its, in their context. Um, but listen to what Jesus said. Just listen. You can look at it later. It's in Matthew 12. The first part of the passage I'm convinced you all are familiar with. The last sentence you would never, I think, have connected with it. But it's there. 
Jesus says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear, uh, to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. That I think you know. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Okay, now, I know you know the part about Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South. I don't think we've normally connected it with a man who the demon is cast out, but then the demon comes back with seven other demons. Okay? But listen to the last sentence of this paragraph. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. In other words, Jesus is saying he came with the good news. He cleaned house. Figuratively and literally, his cleansing of the temple was, I mean, it was genuine, but it was also symbolic of what he sought to do for Israel, to get rid of the wickedness of Israel. He cleaned house with the preaching of the good news. But you know what? They did not accept the good news. And what's going to happen with God's judgment is their situation will be worse at the end than it was at the beginning. A demon will come back with seven more demons. The result is not death, but torment. This is what happens to those who have turned their back on God's covenant. I told you when we began our study of the book of Revelation that my approach is preterist. That is, I believe that what is written in Revelation has already happened. Most of it happens in the first century. But we should not overlook the principle here as was the case with the seven churches that applies to us, as to the issue of the centrality of worship, the issue of justice and worship. That we can certainly apply to ourselves. Those who reject the authority of Christ, those who clean house but do not accept his, his role as king, who reject his rule, may find their situation far worse than it was at the beginning. This is true for individuals. This is true for communities. This is true for nations. It is not simply enough to clean house, to get rid of the demons. We know that nature abhors a vacuum. Someone must rule. And if you get rid of demonic rule, but you do not accept Christ's rule, then guess what? They're coming back, and they're coming back with a vengeance. And Israel, who had the Son of God come in and clean their house, do not accept his rule. And the judgment that John describes here in chapter 9 is far worse than anything they had before Christ came. We'll continue this next week, but let's wrap it up at this point. What can we learn from what we've seen thus far? First of all, the centrality of worship. The book of Revelation is a book of worship. And thus we should not be surprised. In the early church, in the second century, uh, they divided up the book of Revelation into sections so that they read through it every year. 
one section every Sunday. It was worship to them, and it should be to us. Unfortunately, we live in a time in which it's seen as some kind of magical key to knowing the future. No, it is a book of worship. And the God we worship is a God of justice. We should, the second thing is we should not separate the issue of worship and justice. In our lives, if we do not act with justice toward others, then we can say we should not worship God. If we have not acted with justice toward others, then we have no right to worship God. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go back and, and do it right. Make sure you've made things right. Act with justice. And then worship God. And then secondly, when we worship God, there is an acknowledgement that we aren't God, He is. And while I can make things right toward others, if I've wronged others, I can, by God's grace, attempt to make those things right. I cannot change other people. And when people wrong me, that's not in my hands to correct. And so I worship God by saying, this is your business. You're the God of justice. You're the God of judgment. I'm not going to be eaten up by anger or malice or bitterness because these things aren't in my hands. They're in your hands. I worship you, God, as the God of justice, the one who is worthy, the one who is holy, holy, holy. And lastly, the idea of worship and justice is seen supremely, I think, in the Lord's Supper. God's justice is seen in that he doesn't say, oh, you sinned? Oh, don't worry about it. You broke my law? Oh, it's no big deal. No. The judgment that belongs to me, he put on Christ. God is a God of justice. And so as we remember Christ's death, we remember one who suffered in our place. But then as Paul tells the Corinthians, we are also to act with justice toward others. We cannot come to the Lord's table and say we are one, we are God's family, we are the body of Christ, and then treat each other with contempt. God is a God of justice. We are to be his people, people of justice. Let's pray together. Father, we are human, and as such, we seek to be the center of all things. We seek to replace you at every turn. And even when it comes to the matter of worship, oftentimes it's about us and what we get out of it and what we feel. Whether we feel like we've drawn closer to you. We have forgotten that worship is about you and ascribing worth to you, that you and you alone are worthy. And so it's been very easy for us to forget about the whole matter of justice and judgment. Like the people, the Old Testament, we've forgotten that it isn't public worship that you desire alone, but that we would act with justice in our lives. And if we don't, then we're hypocrites. And what we do is not pleasing to you, but it's something that you hate. And then in our worship, we have forgotten that we are to commit 
the wrongs that have been done against us to you. And the people who have done those wrongs, we are to commit into your hands. That you would do what is right. And instead, as we saw in Sunday school, we seek to solve the problems, to arrange the circumstances. In our hearts, we seek revenge. We become angry and bitter. And so we're not worshiping you at that point. In fact, we're doing quite the opposite. We're worshiping ourselves as the one who will make things right. By your grace, may we humble ourselves and act with justice toward others and leave the matter of justice and what people have done to us into your very capable hands. We like to hear about mercy rather than justice, but we forget that there can be no mercy if there is no justice. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stood in our place, who received our judgment in himself, that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might become your sons and daughters. What an amazing gift that we remember today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Stand, please, as we sing the doxology together. God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.